Hey, everybody, welcome to the Addiction Unlimited podcast, where you get to learn everything you want to know about addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Angela Pugh, co-founder of Kansas City Recovery, life coach, and recovering alcoholic. To learn more about me, you can listen to episode zero on your podcast app or find us on the web at addictionunlimited.com. Hello, my friend. You are all familiar with the concept. You see it in movies, all over television. We read it in all the books. Someone's life is spiraling out of control. They're getting DUIs, getting arrested, getting fired, going to prison. And when they're at their all-time low, they land at their rock-bottom moment and decide they have to change their lives. The problem with this picture of addiction and rock bottom is it doesn't leave space for all of you that haven't had any of those consequences. It doesn't give you, the high-functioning person, an opportunity to see yourself and see how you fit in sobriety and what your path might look like. And to be clear, not everyone destroys their lives before getting sober. You can be living a life with a nice roof over your head, a job, relationship, kids, drinking a latte and working out every day and still have a substance problem. You may even relate to my situation where I was a little bit of both. I had some tragic moments that definitely got my attention, but the truth is I was totally high functioning. I made plenty of money. I lived in a beautiful home. I had an expensive car and a Louis Vuitton handbag, and none of those things had any impact on my drinking problem. It did allow me to avoid the seriousness of my problem and continue putting off taking action a little bit longer. Unfortunately, when it comes to understanding rock bottom, there's a lot more misconception than truth. You may know my guest today from the Sober Friends podcast. Matt J is with me to talk about what rock bottom looks like when you are high functioning. Matt, thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation with me. Angela. Why don't you take a second, tell everybody who you are and what you do. My name is Matt J. You can call me Matt Jur. I try and stay as anonymous as possible. But in this world, if you want to have a successful podcast, you kind of have to be out there. So I'm the host of the Sober Friends podcast. What we do is just share experience, strength, and hope, kind of like a meeting in your pocket. That was the whole purpose of doing it. Been doing it since November of 2020. You can find us anywhere. Okay, so let's talk about high functioning, rock bottom, low bottom. Uh, I asked you to come on and talk about this topic because it's really fascinating to me. I feel like people use this term high functioning as a way really to separate themselves. People have this view that rock bottom is an event, right? It's something that happens when really rock bottom is internal. Rock bottom is just the very moment that you go in your head, oh my God, I cannot live like this anymore. Something has got to change. And rock bottom doesn't have anything to do with how high functioning you are. You know, if you're super high functioning, you're not losing all of your things, then maybe you're able to maintain a little bit longer. But that doesn't mean internally you're not in a terrible place and really unhappy and miserable. I was, it's funny you said this, there is 
There's a certain politician who recently is in law trouble who mentioned that they can't be an alcoholic because they were so effective when they were in elected office. So how could I have been an alcoholic? And I'm like, dude, everybody who is really an alcoholic, they're the people who are most effective at work, who just dive in. Yeah, It's not about that. I think the low bottom thing comes in because you see these stories of people who are, you know, it was my 12th DUI. Right. It was I, I, I literally fell into the emergency room and I was bleeding from every orifice. That does look like an event and a low bottom. And I'm like, well, I wasn't bleeding from my ears and my nose and my eyes and I still could see and I never got a DUI. So. I must not have hit my bottom. And it never really occurred to me, well, why do you have to wait until then? Yeah. And I really struggled with the whole, so the low bottom, high bottom in, in air quotes, functioning in air quotes, because you can have mental distress. You could be in a situation where the the hamster wheel is just going crazy in your head, but the appearances are okay. And that's part of the disease that we would want to hide this from you. If you're really low bottom and you're homeless, it's like it's gone beyond that mm -hmm. situation. But to me, I really struggled going into a meeting, hearing these stories and think I deserve to be here. I was in a place where I wanted to be there, but I didn't feel like I deserved it. And I felt everybody was saying, well, why are you here? Mm. You're not like us. You didn't have the same problems, which was all in my head. Anybody who's a good member of a 12-step program is opening, well, come in early. But I struggled with that. Yeah, the earlier, the better. There's no reason to ride it all the way to bottom. Mm -hmm. But this comes into the point that you want to tell yourself lies. Yes. That if I'm high-functioning, I don't really have a problem. If I'm like the person that I see in an AA room who said their story of they ended up in a coma. All right. I'm not in a coma. I never got into a coma. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not like you. Because being an alcoholic to me was the worst thing you could possibly say about me because of my family history. I just didn't want to be that. And, you, and it, I think this is really about telling more lies to yourself. We lie to a lot of people, but we don't lie any more than we do to ourselves. And that keeps us mm -hmm. out longer. So you were a high functioning person yourself? I would consider myself that because I didn't have those other right. things. Now I talked myself out of mm -hmm. DUIs. I've gotten pulled over and I talked the, the cop out of it. I ended up in the hospital in college with alcohol poisoning and almost died. Those aren't really high bottom mm -hmm. moments. Those are pretty low bottom moments but you kind of talk your way out and you address it. So I'd consider myself more high bottom because I kept a job. I didn't get, I didn't have the low yeah. bottom things. I didn't end up in the hospital. I didn't get sick. I didn't get the DUI. And I really wanted somebody to tell me to stop. So it would take the mm -hmm. decision out. I really just identify mm -hmm. when you said that because I'm like, damn it. I wish somebody could have taken the decision, but that was not my yeah. path. I always questioned my drinking. I just felt that maybe I was catching this early because I had all those things, the job, the wife, my wife wasn't leaving me. I had the kids, I had the job, I had the house. Things in my life were better than they were for my parents who had their own drinking mm -hmm. problems. So how could I have that? And I just, 
kind of learned that my bottom was realizing that I had the problem, accepting it and realizing I got to do something about it. Because we go back to saying I'm an alcoholic is the worst thing that you could possibly say. And if I accept it, now I got to do something about it. Because the second worst thing is realizing I have a problem, but then continuing to drink. That just wasn't going to happen. I've got plenty of stories that will then tell once your brain clears up. I wasn't as high functioning as I thought I was. I don't was. think anybody is. <laughs> because it no. is just the outside stuff, right? I was very high functioning in appearance. You know, I lived in a beautiful place. I made money. I didn't lose my job. I had the car. I had all the things, right? So for outward appearances, I was very high functioning. But inside, which is my whole point of all of this, inside, it was a very different story. There was no high functioning on the inside. I was so sad and broken and horrified and humiliated. And yeah, it was terrible that none of those words are high functioning. The whole feeling of going somewhere in a social situation and seeing alcohol and trying to make a decision, should I drink, should I not drink? And if I do drink, how many can I drink? And I'm driving, so do I need to drink slowly? Do I want to choose something low alcohol? Because I found out that Guinness is a very low alcohol beer, but it has a lot of flavor. So it feels like you're drinking something heavy, even though you're not. And if I have that, maybe I can have a third and I'm looking at my, my phone and there's an app that tells you your blood alcohol content based on your weight, based on what you're drinking, based on the time. And I can calculate all this stuff out. Now, if you're a normal drinker listening to this, your head probably exploded. Because who talks like that? Who thinks like that? But if that? you're nodding your head, I do. yes, because, because you understand head. all of those things, then you're in the right place. <laughs> if you were there and saying, a BAC app, I never thought about that, that I can plan out my drinking so it's safe. To, that's a good idea. If you thought any of that was a good idea, you need to ask yourself some questions. I didn't have BAC apps when I got sober, or certainly when I was drinking. I didn't have any of the cool stuff you guys have now. I don't think I had the phone maybe at the time, but I would go on the computer ahead of time and look at it and get an idea of if I'm going out, what right. can I drink? Or if I'm not, I'm going to be uncomfortable. Or if I have one, I'm going to want two, but I really want a third. And what am I going to do? And all of this was going on. And I was a speaker at a meeting early on. It was at a meeting in West Hartford, Connecticut. If you know West Hartford, Connecticut, it's pretty bougie. It is, uh, it's nice. It's, there's some money there. And some woman comes up to me with her Prada bag and her very expensive coat. And she's like, she is just put together this, this woman, probably in her mid forties, maybe early fifties at the time. And she walks up and she's like, dear God, the suffering you must have had. And I'm thinking about, what are you talking about? I didn't talk about that at all. She goes, no, you didn't, but I could hear it in your mental anguish. That must have been terrible. And that was the first time I thought about that. I'm like, oh my God, I, I, maybe I am less high functioning than I thought because she's right. The committee was in my head and it was, it was a two-fisted brawl every single time. And the beauty now, the joy of going, even if I go with friends or somewhere where alcohol served, I almost feel smug of, 
The committee is in recess right now. That decision's gone. You go and drink. I'm going to sit back and I don't have to worry mm-hmm. about this anymore. And guess what? I've got some tools where I still can function. And that's why I didn't want to drink because what that's the only tool I have in social and social life. I'm not going to be able to talk to people. I'm too shy to do this. And it turned out, no, I had to remove the alcohol to find the ability to communicate with others. Did you feel like part of the struggle of getting sober was because you were high functioning in the other areas of your life? Like, I feel like it's hard. You can sit back and you're like, okay, I have it together in all these other, like I'm successful in my relationship. I'm successful in my job. I'm providing for my family. Like you have so much control in all of these other ways. And there's this one thing that you can't figure out. Did you struggle with that? Like thinking like at some point I'm going to be able to control this or I'm going to figure it out because I am a high functioning person. I was always thinking that I would eventually figure this out. And there were a lot of times that I could drink normally, which means I could have a couple of beers out and stop. But man, I was miserable. It felt like wearing a wool sweater on the inside. It's the only way I could describe it. And a lot of times I could hold it together. But that's not a healthy thing that you have two beers and I'm like, I got to hold this together with all of my life. And I figured out how to do that. That is not figuring out how to drink non-alcoholically. I would say the biggest thing was if I admit I'm an alcoholic, then I'm like my father. Mm. I'm like my stepfather. And that was not something I was going to be. There are just so many people in my family who had alcohol issues and a lot of them were mean and nasty and did things to make my life much harder. And thinking through, I was never going to be like that. I was going to be a good dad. And I wasn't going to, those kids were not going to have my experience. And to realize, and if I were to admit, I've got a drinking problem, then I'm just like him. And I'm going to treat them like I was treated. And so I could change, which is the obvious answer. Or I could just say, well, I'm not an alcoholic. So I am not like them. But it turned out I had the same affliction, but I could do something about it. There was a lot there. So I had, I, there was a lot around, I had to keep my drinking under a certain amount because if I drank more than that, I Mm -hmm. crossed the line and I never wanted to cross the line into alcoholism, realizing I was already well Mm -hmm. past. It's always fascinating to me to hear the associations people have with the word alcoholic because it it is oftentimes really negative for people. And I didn't have that, right? I I kind of looked at it like I called myself an alcoholic when I was drinking. So I wasn't going to change my title because I quit drinking, right? Like it just made sense. I was right. an alcoholic. There was no question. And once I got sober, I really wore that as a badge of honor. Like to me, it's, me it's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It is a hundred percent a superpower, you know, where there is some craziness in my brain and my little monkey brain that never, ever, ever has a moment of peace. It also makes me so much more a strong, capable, limitless person, right? So I just, I didn't have any negative connotation with that, but I love hearing other people's experience. And I think 
hearing it, like how you said it, I can relate to a lot because my father did drugs and that's why I never would do drugs. I've never done drugs. I never experimented. I mean, I smoked pot some, but it wasn't my thing. I'm a good old fashioned drunk, you know, but I would never do drugs because I didn't want to be like him. Little did I know I'm exactly like him. I just had a different substance, you know, but, but we are oh, yeah. the same. So I really can relate to that. And I think it in a lot of, it gives me a lot more empathy for other people who struggle with that terminology. I know a lot of people in the podcast community. So it's like, I have this two, two different crews. I have my 12 step crew I see in person. And then my sober people that are kind of like an Instagram podcast community who are mostly not 12 step. And a lot of those people use the term alcohol use disorder, or they use I'm sober or something like that. And I very much respect that because I want you to use what you're going to be comfortable with. I love that big fiery term yeah, alcoholic. Me too. Fiery. It is that term that you walk into the, you know, the, the, the saloon in the old West and immediately I'm fighting and there's chairs coming out because every time I hear it, it reminds me of what I really am. And it no longer has power over me because I'm not active. I can say I'm an alcoholic and I can hear it. And it reminds me of who I am deep inside, but I'm not going to let that define me. And I have overcome it for today. If I don't keep doing these things, that will become a very dirty thing. And that fight will start again inside me. And I like to take credit. Like there are step work things that I've like paying old bills. I love doing because it's like, okay, I can check the box on getting this bill done, but I'm also doing a ninth step amends because I'm paying you the stuff I owe you. Every time I say I'm an alcoholic, I'm checking off the box. Step right. one, every single, Oh, I'm doing step work. I called myself an alcoholic. Multitasking. Multitasking. I love the same uh, spiciness of AA too. You know, like I loved from day one when people were like, do you want to drink? I'd be like, no, I don't drink. And they're like, Oh, ever you don't drink ever. Like, not even one. And I'm like, no, I'm sober, like AA sober. And I love the power of that statement. And, you know, and some people get scared a little bit like, oh, okay. But I think it really signifies that for me, my association is it really signifies that I have fought the battle of a lifetime and and I'm uh -huh. overcoming it, right? Again, just like you said, as long as I remain diligent and doing the things that keep me well, then I get to continue to be the victor in this battle. And you can be an example for somebody else. That is where I am. I have to tell you, I needed a meeting on Monday and I couldn't go. It is very rare that I'm like, I need to go to a meeting. But it is now about, I'm going to a meeting so somebody else can have a meeting. And I get a thrill from being an example to somebody else. And I'm constantly thinking about, don't be a jerk because you could turn somebody off and they may start drinking again. So I, I get a thrill out of being a really good example for somebody else, even if it means I've got to be vulnerable in a real mm -hmm. way. That is one of those things that keeps me sober now, just being the yeah, example. For sure. Did you, what was your biggest challenge? Like in your first year sober, what was the hardest thing for you? Getting permission to go to meetings. So I've got a nine, 11 and 15 year old and I'm going to need the calculator to figure out the other ones, but, um, I will be 10 years sober in March. 
And my daughter was born two days before I decided to get sober. So if I'm going to these meetings, I'm leaving my wife alone with a newborn and a two-year-old and I don't know, a four-year-old at the time. He was in kindergarten and she didn't really like me leaving to go hang out with my friends. You know, okay, I've gotten sober, but you should have not been drinking anyway. Why do you need to go to these meetings? And three months in, she said, when are you going to stop doing this? When does it get to the point where you stop? And I'm like, I am screwed. And so there was a lot of resistance to me leaving. And I think that was about a two-year thing. And she said to me, you know, she was going through therapy. So part of this as well is she lost her mother. And the there was a number of years that she never really grieved and had lots of anxiety issues and went to a therapist and got through it and really became a different person. But she said her therapist said that your husband's a dry drunk if he still has to go to AA this this long and our neighbor doesn't go to meetings anymore and why can't you be more like them? And I said, okay, so a couple things here. Don't ever compare me to my neighbor because I can tell you I'm not a fan of that person's sobriety. And second of all, don't, your therapist has got this wrong. You have to keep treating this. So we made a deal that I would go back to therapy but I would have to go to a therapist who handled drug and alcohol addiction, which I did. And that gave me the permission. And it was sort of like that pivot point where she got it. And now I don't get crap for going to meetings. If anything, I get her saying, no, you really need to go to a meeting. <laughs> yes. Have you thought about going to a meeting? Have you thought about calling somebody? So, but that lack of support at home was the biggest obstacle and I was impatient, and the people who I admired said, we dealt with it too, it will go away. You just got to be patient. It has to be so hard to for the people around us, certainly partners, because it's like when you're drinking, it's all about you and your drama and chaos and them trying to hold it together and pick up the pieces and dealing with all the fallout. And then when you get sober, it's all about you and staying sober and all the things that you have to do to stay well and healthy and, and all those things. And it is so challenging in so many ways to be a person around us. You know? Well, it changes the dynamics on the yeah. relationship. Even if the relationship is not good because of alcohol, the devil I know is better than the devil I don't. So I've gotten used to what my place in the family is and the things that I do. And I know how to get around dad when he gets drunk or belligerent or embarrassing, but that's the known. Now that he's not drinking, there are things that maybe he wants to pull back on uh, with the, there are duties that maybe he wants to take mm -hmm. on and that upsets the family dynamic. Well, I'm used to him being shy and introverted and not talking to people, and now he's out of the house one hour a night every night, and I have learned how to live a certain way, even if it's not conducive to happiness, and that's challenged. So everybody's role gets challenged when the person stops drinking and is mm -hmm. getting healthy. It's changed. Nobody likes was change. Was it a struggle for your wife too, that high functioning piece? Like, was it hard for her because you're a high functioning person, right? You're working, you're providing, you're fathering, you're doing the things. Was it hard for her to understand 
what like the level of commitment like you're saying she's like when are you going to stop going to meetings it's like well we kind of go for a really long time <laughs> she i had to tell her i had a problem but she was also understanding because she knew my family dynamic and so her i her thought immediately is you didn't have a chance mm. you had no chance at this this was going to happen but it just was a struggle with i don't see why you have mm. to do this it's almost like you're taking this too seriously. You're doing too much. You should be with us. And the kids a lot of times would ask, well, why do you have to go? Why do you have to go? And I finally learned to say, I'm going to be a better dad. But you already are a great dad. I go, yeah. that's why. Yeah, so good. How would you say your relationships with your kids have changed for the better? It was a slow change. Yeah. So I saw how the children were treating me different. A lot of it was they were all a magnet to mom. And I didn't really think, I don't think it was bad, but I noticed instead of always going to mom, slowly they came to me more with stuff. I just saw this change in engagement. And this was not immediate. This was months, this was years, and this still continues to this day. I think there's a change there that, you look at your selfish tendencies because you have to, you're taught certain things. So you give more to the kids. You listen more. You try and put your phone down and do everything you can to focus on them. And I've noticed that the relationship is different. They have one relationship with mom. They have another relationship with me. It is fascinating to watch how all of your relationships shift. And I think earning the trust back from people for me was just because I was going to meetings, right? Because they could see me do it, right? It didn't matter anymore what I said. It didn't matter if I said, oh, I'm not drinking anymore. I really mean it this time. Like, yeah, whatever, dude. So, but getting to watch <laughs> me do it, right? Watching me really show up for myself in my own life in a way that I had never done before. That's what really started bringing people back and, and allowing them to believe me. Like every day I was earning that trust by showing them how committed I was and how serious I was. Yeah, I... It's little at a time. I talk often about sobriety is not moving at smartphone pace. This is really old fashioned that some of these relationships and some of these changes take months or years. Mm -hmm. There are things right now that are just kicking in for me at nine years. I'm finally getting treated for ADHD and realizing now that I've been diagnosed, this was a lot of the root of my problems. And I thought I was stupid and I couldn't pay attention, and I was lazy. And it turned out that, no, I, pretty, I am pretty strong for the fact that I've been able to overcome and be this focused when I don't want to be. That's amazing. But now realizing, oh, my God, when I behave this way and this way and I go down this rabbit hole, this is the thing, and now this is what I have to address. And that's very scary to me. Like, how do I get over, the, how do I get over this hill? Because this is, there's always something like once you remove the alcohol, now you can see what you need to fix. It's like, okay, I can see the smoke is gone right. in my house. I see where the burn marks are. I'm overwhelmed with them all. The answer is go one at a time. 
and work your way around and, cl- yeah. and clean them up and fix them. Yeah. And so often people think, oh, I mean, like drinking is the problem and drinking is the problem, but we drink for a reason. And they think- Drinking's the solution. Right. And you, they think, I'm going to put the drink down and magically everything's going to be okay. But the truth is my behavior was my behavior before I was wasted. You know, like it got worse as a result of my drinking. i miraculously made even worse choices in my life. <laughs> but but yeah, you do have to fix those things. It doesn't all magically disappear just because you put the drink down. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's long, it's long-term stuff. It's, it's never going to stop. I hope nine years from now, I look back and say, oh my gosh, I knew nothing. Life is so much better now. And I was able to get past that. And I, and if you're really thinking about putting the bottle down, give that some thought that if you're doing some things, you're three months in and you look at somebody who's been sober 15 years and you say, I must be doing it wrong because I'm not like them. No, you're not going to get that way in three months. You're going to be a mess. Be okay being a mess For sometimes. Sure, yeah. Like that first year, it was a mess. Yeah, I say that to my audience too, where it's like, listen, you guys are looking at me as who I am and, and who I'm showing up as today. But this current version of me really just came into focus in the last four to five years. Like it has taken me all of my almost 18 years to get to be this person today. You know, I didn't start this way. I wasn't this human on day one. I promise you. you know? No, no, that's the key. That's why I like hearing old timers talk about when they were a mess mm-hmm. because you see some of those old timers and like they are Mr. AA and to hear all the mistakes they made that you would never see them make now helps me understand, all right, if Frank was such a mess then and made all these terrible mistakes that I'm like, I would be ashamed to show in front of him, then I'm okay. I can get to that point. I'm not broken. Right. It just, I got to do some work. Right. What would you say has been the most surprising thing about living a sober life? Boy, that's a good one. I would say that I always thought the only way I was going to make friends, meet a girl, socialize is if I had a glass of beer or wine in my hand. And it turns out I have more confidence in being social without it because I didn't need it to begin with. Yeah. And it was holding me back. And I wish I knew that. That that shyness and that introversion is something that I continuously struggle with but I've come to terms with that's what it is. So what do I do next? It gives me the confidence to be boring if I'm boring. Right. Felt like, oh, I, I have to be this exciting personality. No, I can be boring. I'm just going to be me. And if that's not good enough for people, then it's not good enough for people. And I accept that. Yeah. I, that acceptance of who I am and that I'm a lot better than I thought is the biggest surprise. I always thought I was an extrovert. And then I got sober and realized I was just drunk. I was never <laughs> I was never actually an extrovert. But it is challenging, you know, when, as an introvert when you have a more quiet, subdued personality. Well, I do like extroverts because they'll do the talking for me. I mean, I'm an introvert. I don't do small talk, right? I don't want to talk about dumb surface stuff. Like I want to connect. Like we are going to get on a soul level fast because that's mm-hmm. where I like to be. You know, there's I think that weirds people out if you go on immediately and say, so tell me, tell me about your goals for spirituality and how you want to enlighten who you are on the inside. It's like, lady, I just, 
you know, this is a Sabaro. You don't sorry. have you don't have to be weird about it. I'm a coach, yeah. so it's, see, it's it's knowing how to ask the questions. I caught myself the other day, exactly. like I just took a group of people on a sober vacation to Costa Rica, and we're sitting at dinner. And, you know, part of the group I knew and have worked with me privately, and there was this other part of the group that just booked the trip from listening to the podcast, right? And so I didn't know them. And I was talking to one of them and we're just chatting and he said something and all of a sudden the switch flipped and I was coach and I asked a question and I caught myself and I was like, I just went into coach mode. Sorry. <laughs> but it's just pulling the information out is part of the fun. So I want to flip the script on you. Okay. How does that feel that you started a podcast and that you put a podcast out and because of that, there are people motivated enough to go on a cruise with you to Costa Rica. Is that something you can believe that these people who don't know you, you just threw this into the air, somebody caught it through the air and they booked a trip, multiple people. What is that like? It's unreal, honestly. And I, we literally just got back. I mean, as you and I are recording this, I just got back a couple of days ago. Um, and I have been in this mind space from day one of the trip, like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. It's amazing. I can't believe it's finally happening. So for me, I went on a sober cruise my first year sober. And I was 10 months sober when we went on the cruise, but I had booked it way in advance. I was probably only two or three months sober when I booked it. Like I knew I wasn't drinking, right? I was all in. So that cruise was one of the greatest experiences of my life. And I went by myself and there were just all these other sober people. And of course, you know how we are. We just connect and we just love each other. And it's the most yep. amazing connection you will ever have. And it was life-changing. And so I always knew that it was something that I wanted to do because a lot of people don't even know that's an option. And vacations are a huge trigger for drinking people. Oh, yeah. So when I started the podcast, you know, I didn't have any plan for the podcast. I, I was just talking because I talk too much. And it, <laughs> it was just an excuse, you know? And I was like, well, people ask me the same questions over and over as an interventionist, as a coach. Like, I'll just start putting this information out and I'll kind of have this resource hub and I can point people to episodes. Like, I never knew the podcast would become a thing. But as it grew and it got bigger, that sober travel was always in the back of my head. Like, I know I want to do sober vacations. It's just such a powerful way to connect. And uh, the right opportunity presented itself. And this was my first one. I'm already planning my second one. We're doing Bali in May. And people brought their spouses and partners on the trip too who aren't alcoholics. And I mean, it was unbelievable. This is like going to following the Grateful Dead without all the drugs <laughs> yes. in a sense. But it opens the door yeah. for people to do sober vacations, maybe on their own and something they never would have done. But that's amazing. First, taking that leap of, I don't, so I say it this way, I don't know this person that I'm listening to, but the great thing about podcasts that are really great is I don't know this person, but I feel like they're my best friend. Yes. Yes. And so, yeah, I want to go see them on a vacation. Yeah. That's that's the sign of a really great podcast when you're listening through and I'm like, I feel like I'm overhearing my friends. Yeah. 
Yeah. Or I feel like I'm close to this person. I feel comfortable with this person. I always love to ask people, what is the most surprising thing about meeting me in real life? You know, because you get some really interesting answers because you do also have a moment of realizing how much you don't know the person. (laughs) You know, like all of a sudden we've all flown to Costa Rica to be on this trip together and you go, oh, wow, I don't actually know this person. And it's so funny the the responses that you get, and it's really interesting. But one of the things that came up several times from different people was they were surprised at how, like, they expected me to to like have my coach hat on the whole time, right? They thought I was going to be like super professional and like leading groups and then ducking out to my room, and I was with them the whole time, right? We did everything together: white water rafting, we're hiking, riding horse. Like, I was right in the mix, and people were surprised by that. Like, they didn't expect me to be. Um, several people it's said your vacation like, too. I know that's what I said, but they were like, you're, you're so real and down to earth where in the podcast, you, you don't always get to share all the facets of your personality, right. right? Because again, I'm in coach mode on the podcast I'm teaching. So it was really fun, uh, to allow people to see the other pieces of me also. And the fact that they enjoyed it, it was, it was incredible. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life for sure. That sounds awesome. I love that there, Bali seems to be like the place to go. So it just, I just know so many people who are from Bali or went to Bali or in Bali now, especially in this sober community. Like that just seems to be like the bullseye area. It's such a big spiritual place, you know, and I'm the same as you. I have so many friends that have been going to Bali over the last few years. Like I feel like I've just been hearing about it nonstop. I actually did a survey when I decided to do sober vacations. I did a survey and had, you know, a few hundred people fill out these surveys and I'm just going to the top places they picked. So mm-hmm. it's not, I'm not picking these places. You know, I've been to Costa Rica before. I was happy to go again, but um, yeah, I'm just picking their top choices. And this is where everybody wanted to go is Costa Rica, Hawaii, and then Bali and then Italy. And I think we're probably going to do Italy in the fall next year. I think Hawaii for me would be last out of all those places. I don't know. Hawaii's, I'm not saying Hawaii's boring, right? but if I've got a choice that I want to explore, I definitely want to eat some pasta in Italy. Yeah. Bali sounds like it's exotic. Costa Rica, exotic. I mean, Hawaii is a bunch of islands that are, it's like a remote United States. Yeah. And it is really beautiful. Hawaii is really beautiful. I think a lot of places, it's just that I've already been, right? And I want to explore too. And I want to go places Mm -hmm. that I haven't been. So, okay, Matt, thank you so much for coming on and doing this with me. It was a great conversation. Tell everybody where to find you. You can find me on Instagram at SoberFriendsPod or the website SoberFriendsPod.com. That's going to direct you everywhere. You're overhearing a conversation kind of like what we had today. You're you're listening in to two people talking about sobriety that you can relate and to. And for the listeners, I will link all of that in the show notes as well so you can get there right from your favorite podcast app. Thanks again, Matt. You've reached the end of another great episode of the Addiction Unlimited podcast, candid and honest conversation about addiction and recovery. Be sure to visit us at addictionunlimited.com to join the conversation and access show notes and links to everything we talked about. Love this episode? Please take 30 seconds to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes to help us improve and give you the information you want. Thanks for listening. See you next week.